Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Surma Pod. This is the official podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I'm the founder and CEO, Rich Lankov, also your host for today's podcast. Really interesting topic today, dealing with fan fiction, intellectual property, um, and a really interesting lawsuit arising from the hit Netflix series, Bridgerton. We're very pleased to have two distinguished guests with us today. Uh, both of whom have written and spoken extensively about this subject. From the University of Tulsa, we've got Professor Betsy Rosenblatt. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And from Harvard University, we've got Professor of English, Derek Miller. Professor, welcome as well. Thank you, Rich. Happy to be here. So we should say that this lawsuit just recently settled, which is interesting. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, the backstory is Bridgerton, of course, is a hit Netflix uh, TV show, and uh, a couple of fans made some, developed a musical. Started off as a single song, a TikTok song uh, that was based on the characters, based on the story of the Netflix series, and that got a lot of a, uh, a lot of traction online, lots of views, lots of popularity. Uh, they ended up. Emily Bear and Abigail Barlow specifically created a uh, entire musical surrounding this intellectual property to the point where they were actually not just putting forth TikTok videos, but actually sold tickets to a show, a major show at the Kennedy Center in Washington. Uh, Netflix got a wind of this and they filed a lawsuit alleging that Bear and Barlow we're basically using their intellectual property without their permission. Now, what's interesting is that Netflix and Shonda Rhimes, the creator of this piece of intellectual property, initially were very supportive of this fan fiction. They actually praised it. They ended up being litigants. How do we get to that point? Professor Rosenblatt, do you want to give us a little bit more detail on the backstory what, what, uh, behind the lawsuit involved here? Sure. I want to start by saying this is a variety of fan creativity that has been going on for as long as there have been things made. Fans have been making things about it, sometimes making money from it, sometimes not. And often, very often, companies love this. They want to encourage it uh, because it actually brings business in. It helps people be engaged with the stuff that they're creating. And this is an example of that where uh, these producers created something and met with what at first was uh, approval and enthusiasm. And, and then ultimately this question arose of, well, but once you're making money off of it, uh, maybe the producer should see some of that money. So it's not really a question of objecting to it. I don't think anybody ever objected to this musical and, in fact, probably would have been thrilled for it to continue as a TikTok uh, phenomenon. Uh, and the lawsuit arose because Netflix wanted some cash. And to your point, this was not just fan fiction. This was incredibly successful to the point of winning a Grammy. Uh, Barlow and Bear in 2022 won a Grammy for... Uh, this, these songs. Um, that's I just different want to note, than, though, 
you make a distinction between fan fiction and successful things. Fan fiction can be phenomenal, phenomenally successful. And this is, this is an example of that happening. So explain why um, intellectual property owners, you mentioned this, but why are they generally in favor of it? Obviously, it brings different eyes, different views, maybe younger perspective, people, younger fans to it. But why do um, owners of IP often support, to your point, this type of fan-created content? Well, I think fan-created content often does something different from what the producers would do and appeals to a broader or a different audience. The makers of TV shows and movies have to aim at the lowest common denominator of the public. Uh, and fans can do their own thing and find their own voices and do things that may have smaller audiences, uh, you know, niche ideas, but can bring members of those niche audiences into the fandom and into caring about and buying products about and watching and encouraging the renewal of shows and things like that. So increasing fan engagement often requires and, and not only requires allowing uh, fans to do these things, but encouraging that and including fans in the process. Professor Miller, at some point, Netflix got more interested in what was going on with Barlow and Bear, as Professor Rosemont mentioned, because it was making money. At the end of the day, lawsuits are about money, right? We're trying to recover as a plaintiff monetary damages, um, in this case, for allegedly going beyond the scope of the license. What was the threshold there, in your opinion? I mean, again, this is not just putting on a musical in some local, you know, uh, repertoire theater. This is the Kennedy Center. They were also scheduled to play in London at Royal Albert Hall. These are major venues generating possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. That obviously got Netflix's attention. Yeah, I think the money is very important. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the details of the story are really interesting because there's clearly communication, as Professor Rosenblatt was indicating. Um, there's communication between Netflix and Barlow and Bear all along. They're being openly supportive. Barlow and Bear are asking permission for some of these performances that they're giving. Um, and Netflix is sort of saying, well, we're not saying you have permission, but we're basically saying we're not going to bother about this too much. Um, we're, we don't really have any problem with what you're doing right now. Um, and then eventually that's what shifts is they go from saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to let you carry on here to saying, wait a second, we never licensed anything. You guys need to knock this off. This has gone too far. And as you said, yes, this is about money. The other important detail I think is that the media that in which, through which Netflix is exploiting the property changes to overlap with what Barlow and Bear are doing. So there's a detail in, in section two of their filing of their complaint where they note that their Netflix is now putting forward something called the Bridgerton experience. I assume they've rented out two floors of a defunct, you know, shoe warehouse and you can walk inside and see actors in period costumes serving tea and gossiping about things. I don't know. There's like an ice cream land in New York right now. I imagine it's like that, but for Bridgerton. Uh, and that's the sort of live engagement in person that Netflix clearly in their attorneys felt was being usurped by the musical experience that Barlow and Bear were offering at the Kennedy Center. The other aspect of this that's interesting to me historically is the performance, the live performances 
were billed as part of fundraisers, as charitable events. And there's a long history in copyright litigation of charitable events also demanding certain kinds of special permissions. Um, back to the days of Gilbert and Sullivan, you see people writing to them and saying, "We can, can we do your operetta for free? We're not making any money off of this. We're just going to pay for the hall and all the costumes, and we're going to pay for the, the seats and everything. And, and uh, Gilbert writes back and says, if you're paying everyone else, you can pay us. Um, so I think the charitable aspect of this was something else, too, that made it seem like oh, we're not really infringing on anything. We're not really bothering Netflix's business model. And Netflix says, look, we, the live experience of Bridgerton is something we want to sell now too. And if you're going to do that, you're in direct competition with us. Let's go back to the table and negotiate something legal and official. So that's interesting. There's also a case involving Ratatouille, right? The, uh, there's a musical based on, on that property. And that was only a one-time event. And that was also for charity, I believe. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on the details of that. That was recorded. That was a was it a live stage musical, and and I don't know if there was any litigation about that, or or I think Disney just sort of let it roll. Pixar just let it roll. Professor Rosenblatt, maybe you know more. So the story with the Ratatouille uh, musical was uh, similar in the sense that it went along for a long time without any objection, and in fact, a tacit encouragement. Uh, from Disney and Pixar, but when it came time to uh, release it as a as a full event that was raising money for charity, uh, they actually got Disney and Pixar involved. So they they had permission, explicit permission for that. So that brings it's us not to... Clear to me. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. It's not clear to me that any of this would require permission as a matter of law. I think there's arguments on both sides. But I think that there's there are arguments that what the makers of the Ratatouille musical and the makers of the Bridgerton musical were doing was within the boundaries of what copyright fair use and uh, what trademark law permit in the sense that they're using relatively limited portions. They're doing something. Uh, that really transforms the underlying work into an entirely new genre and medium. Uh, and they're not competing with something that the underlying producers have done. Derek, you raised, or Professor Miller, you raised that uh, they're, they're uh, competing perhaps with certain kinds of live experiences. But evidence seems to show that the more experiences you have, the more experiences people do. So the idea that people would go to this musical instead of going to a convention or some other live event um, is is probably more talk than action. So I think there's an, there's an argument, at least, that uh, what they're doing would qualify as fair use. But whether it would qualify as fair use or not, isn't the main issue in the question of whether to pursue or to continue to defend litigation. When you're up against a major corporation, you're asking more about whether you have insurance than whether you'll win. I know, I know um, you've got more to say about the insurance issue, but uh, I just wanted to jump in and say, I don't disagree that the, I think more exposure often increases the value of these products and markets. And I think companies are probably generally overly litigious. And one of the interesting things of this case is you start to see the boundaries of where companies are allowing more leeway, even in material that gets 
big traction in uh, terms of public attention. Uh, so I, I think it's fascinating in that sense. Yeah, I was going to follow up on that because, listen, I'm a lawyer. I deal with a lot of these issues legally. But how important is the backlash in the fan community? We know the fans in these intellectual pro- in, in these pieces of intellectual property are incredibly passionate, right? Especially the more you're dealing with TikTok and online. And these people want a Grammy. I mean, that's no small deal. So how conscious are the plaintiffs in these kind of cases, in this example, Netflix, of angering their fan base by bringing lawsuits against something that's incredibly popular? So it's a, it's a big question to me, actually, why they weren't more concerned about that uh, in the sense that uh, every time a producer takes aggressive action against a fan, there's a huge backlash. But I think that a lot of companies and Netflix is one of them, Warner Brothers is another, Disney is another, the really big companies may actually not care as much about community shaming as we might expect them to because their markets are so big that they expect that they they might not see as much of a hit to their bottom line as the shaming and anger might uh, might imply they would. I mean, it's really hard to tell what's going on, and I don't want to read too much intentionality or control to any party in this case. But I think if you're looking at some of the headlines, the way the stories are reported, Netflix didn't go out hard guns blazing with you know statements to the press about this. They filed their lawsuit. I think there were some quotes from Shonda Rhimes, who's an unusual sort of creative person in that she has a large fan community for a lot of different products that she produces and directs. And a huge amount, I think, of sort of goodwill to say, hey, this went too far. We were supportive, but it's gone too far. And then when the case settled, there was no apology coming from Barlow and Bear. There was no punitive sort of treatment to, to show that they won. Netflix, the headlines all said things like Netflix dismisses or Netflix settles. There was no sense in any way that Barlow and Bear were bad actors or had been punished or, or yelled at in some way. So I think the way the case came out in the press whether managed consciously or not, didn't make Netflix look brutal and overbearing. Um, There was the fact of the lawsuit, but apart from that, the narrative was not one of massive threat. They've learned that lesson from, they've learned that lesson from Paramount, which did it wrong a few times over, over the course of history uh, with Star Trek. And uh, I think that's, it's sort of understood now that alienating your fans is a bad move. (laughs) You know, you raised fair use, and I just want to take a little bit deeper dive into that very quickly because, you know, that's obviously a defense that's raised in these lawsuits. And you mentioned that um, it was a different, you know, different form of media, so to speak. But that, you know, there's case law on both sides of that. I mean, the, the fact that you use a different type of exploitation of a certain piece of intellectual property doesn't in, it, in and of itself mean that it's fair use. In this case, one of the factors that the plaintiffs laid out was that you were using, that Barlow and Bear were using actual verbatim dialogue and actual characters. You know, that seems like a factor against fair use. Also, the fact that, as we've talked about a couple of times, this was a very lucrative exploitation, right? It wasn't for charity. It wasn't for free. It was for, you know, selling tickets and selling merchandise. Um, the fact that they used a lot of it, right, the amount used is often looked at when you're determining fair use. Um, so who knows the case settled, but who knows how those factors would have played out had this case gone forward? 
We do not. And the points you raise are valid. Uh, making sequels is is considered non-transformative. Merely transmitting something into a different genre or medium is not considered transformative. So the question of whether what Barlow and Bear did is transformative becomes a fact question. And we have to ask whether they would have a different meaning, message, or purpose than the underlying work. A lot of fan productions really do have a different meaning, message, or purpose. They change things about the character. They change things about the story. They often tell stories about side characters who don't get the attention or about uh, race or sexuality or other issues that aren't front and center in the underlying work. Here, I think it would end up being a fact question where we'd have to ask how topically transformative this musical was. I think the, the other aspect to me that's striking is Bridgerton itself and then the musical adaptation are both partaking of a larger sphere of sort of Regency costume dramas that are popular now, all sort of coming in part off of the popularity of Jane Austen and adaptations of Austiniana. Uh, and you can see sort of a large bloom of that over the past few decades. And so it would be interesting to imagine, and maybe indeed we'll see, that Barlow and Bear essentially rewrite what began as a branded Bridgerton musical into sort of a more generic Regency piece, and perhaps their fame here has given them enough traction to move forward. I, I, one wonders how much the characters really end up mattering to the way that they told this story. Well, and if Fifty Shades of Grey is any indication, uh, the practice, the fan practice of so-called filing the serial numbers off of something for to turn it from a piece of fan fiction into a an, a, a major uh, commercial work uh, can, can work. It can be very successful. So about a month ago, the case settled, about two months after it was filed. Uh, what do you make of the settlement? Again, it seems like from our discussion, uh, the parties on both sides recognize that continuing this conflict isn't good for them, probably not good for the fans, not good for the brand. There's probably room in the universe for a lot of people to partake in this, especially talented people like the fans who created this. What do you make of the settlement? And I also want to follow up with what do you think this, if any, implies for the future of something that's not going anywhere? Fan-created content is not going anywhere, as we know. What does this mean, if anything, for the future? Or because it's settled, maybe it means nothing because we don't know what the terms of the settlement are. That's a, that's a tough one, I know. Well, I'll go briefly because I think I said the main thing I wanted to say, which is the way it got reported was not punitive, was not aggressive, right. didn't involve apologies. Um, the only other thing I'd say is, you know, we'll probably learn a lot more in the next year to year and a half. There's, I think it's not impossible that we'll see at some regional theater in the United States, a tryout of Barlow and Bear's Bridgerton musical, um, you know, produced by Netflix and Shonda Rhimes. That's one possible thing that happened in this settlement, probably with lousy terms for the authors <laughs> in the contracts. Um, but there's, there's a huge spectrum of possible outcomes. Uh, and I think we'll learn more, whether this is ultimately good for the Barlow and Bear's careers, um, what happens to the future of Bridgerton, how Netflix then treats other people with their other properties going forward. This is also Netflix testing their strength as now major content producers. This is certainly not their first, but was an unusual kind of viral property of theirs. Um, so I think the story will be more in how this plays out in most other contexts in the next five to 10 years uh, than about this specific property. But I'd love to hear what Professor Rosenblatt has to say. 
I agree 100%. I think actually the the way this has been narrativized in the press is at least as important as the fact of the suit. Uh, And I think that one thing we know from this is, as you said, uh, Rich, fan creativity isn't going away. The only thing that this might have any impact on, and this and other things like it uh, might have any impact on, is how we shape what fans do to make money. Uh, a great deal of fan creativity is done non-commercially and as part of a gift economy where fans share things with each other and grow and change and build on that. Uh, over the course of the last decade or so, we've seen increasingly fans professionalizing some of their fan work. And we've seen that's when the pushback comes is when in the face of uh, often a combination of difficult economic conditions, uh, making fans want to make money somehow, and the existence of platforms like TikTok and Patreon and various other things that allow people to monetize what otherwise they would give away, um, we're seeing a greater interest in uh, companies capitalizing on fan labor. Uh, The scholar Mel Stanfill has written quite a bit about the sort of incorporation of the fan into the business model of uh, producers and and media companies. And I think we're seeing perhaps a trend of companies wanting a piece of the fan commercial pie that previously they would have been happy not to have, partly because that wasn't a commercial hot pie that was there. Um, And so I think that's a direction we're going, whether that's a direction that's good for creativity and community. I have to say, my opinion is probably no, but but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I don't have any say in these things. And it does mean that there's, uh, there may, we may see more avenues for sort of hybrid or collaborations uh, to come out of this sort of thing. Professor Miller, I want to just give you the last word. Thank you so much for that perspective, Professor Rosemont. Professor Miller, I just want to give you the last word on that, you know, maybe more of a historical context as well, as you referenced earlier. This is not exactly new. This has been, you know, variations of this have been going on for for years, decades, uh, you know, even longer. Uh, You teach theater history. You've written extensively about it. Ultimately, is what Barlow and Baird did here, is that good for culture? Is that good for the arts? Or is that something that is a negative trend in your opinion? Oh, what a big question. Well, Professor Rosenblatt, that's right. Things go, but this goes back way back. It precedes the advent of intellectual property. I have a colleague, Anna, Professor Anna Wilson, who writes about fan fiction, uh, a fan fiction perspective on medieval uh, religious texts. Um, which I think is absolutely right. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's t- emerges a p- sort of somewhat pejorative idea of certain kinds of works circulating in the 20th century commodity culture, but it's always been around. Um, is it good for culture? Culture, I don't think if we can talk about culture in that way. I think more cultural production means that people are engaging with each other with their creativity and their joy and a desire to share themselves with the world. And I think that's better than a lot of other ways that people want to be in the public sphere these days. How about that? It's a great answer to an impossible question. I appreciate it. 
Professor Derek Miller from Harvard, Professor Betsy Rosenblatt from University of Tulsa. Thank you so much for a really interesting discussion. Uh, please join us again on the Sherman Pod in the future. Thank you very much, Rich. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much. It was great. Strategies and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.